You know, one of the things that we often uh, don't realize when we're young are the sacrifices of those around us that they make for our good. Uh, I'm not sure about you, but I remember times in which my parents would go through great costs in order to work for my good. We see this in the health industry where are many medical professionals who will put their, their own safety at risk in order to work for the good uh, of those they're caring for. We've seen it in the life of friends. You know, there's this sacrifice that we make to care for the good of others. We give something up so that we can display an act of love. In John 15, 13, Jesus says, Greater love has no one than this, than he who would lay down his life for his friends. That is who Christ is. That is what Christ has done through great sacrifice to himself, the giving up of his own life. He has worked for our good. You see, Jesus was rejected so that we would always be accepted. And that's what we see happening in Mark 14. Let me show you. Grab your Bible. And turn with me to Mark chapter 14. As a faith family, we've been walking through the gospel of Mark together um, for a very, very long time. And um, we are in chapter 14. Um, and we've been seeing how Jesus is on the move. Um, we're going to be coming back, Lord willing, next week to dig into um, Jesus' time of prayer in the Garden of Gethsemane. Um, but what I'd like for us to do is we're going to read verse 27 through 72 through the end of the chapter. I want to read this, uh, the rest of the chapter together and get a 30,000 foot view of what's happening on the night that Jesus was betrayed. Jesus and the disciples, they have left the upper room. They have made their way down the mountainside, headed through the Kidron Valley to the Mount of Olives. In fact, I took a picture um, up on the screen of the exact steps that Jesus walked down as he was headed to the other side. That's a picture, verse 26, of Jesus. When he and the 11 disciples came down these stairs, they were headed to the other side, to the Mount of Olives. And these are the steps that he took when he was headed over to his time of prayer. And so Scripture says in Mark 14, beginning with verse 27, then Jesus said to them, all of you will fall away because it is written, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered. But after I have risen, I will go ahead of you to Galilee. Peter told him, even if everyone falls away, I will not. Truly, I tell you, Jesus said to him, today, this very night before the rooster crows twice, you will deny me three times. But he kept insisting, if I have to die with you, I will never deny you. And they all said the same thing. Then they came to a place named Gethsemane, and he told his disciples, sit here while I pray. He took Peter, James, and John with him and began to be deeply distressed and troubled. He said to them, I'm deeply grieved to the point of death. Remain here and stay awake. He went a little farther, fell to the ground, and prayed that if it were possible, the hour might pass from him. And he said, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Take this cup away from me. Nevertheless, not what I will, but what you will. Then he came and found them sleeping. He said to Peter, Simon, are you sleeping? Couldn't you stay awake one hour? Stay awake and pray so that you won't enter into temptation. The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. Once again, he went away and prayed, saying the same thing. And he, again, 
He came and found them sleeping because they could not keep their eyes open. They did not know what to say to him. Then he came a third time and said to them, Are you still sleeping and resting? Enough. The time has come. See, the Son of Man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. Get up, let's go. See, my betrayer is near. While he was still speaking, Judas, one of the twelve, suddenly arrived. With him was a mob with swords and clubs from the chief priests and the scribes and the elders. His betrayer had given them a signal. The one I kiss, he said, he's the one. Arrest him and take him away under guard. So when he came, immediately he went up to Jesus and said, Rabbi, and kissed him. They took hold of him and arrested him. One of those who stood by drew his sword, struck the high priest's servant, and cut off his ear. Jesus said to them, have you come out with swords and clubs as if I were a criminal to capture me? Every day I was among you teaching in the temple and you didn't arrest me, but the scriptures must be fulfilled. Then they all deserted him and ran away. Now a certain young man wearing nothing but a linen cloth was following him. They caught hold of him, but he left the linen cloth behind and ran away naked. They led Jesus away to the high priest and all the chief priests and the elders and the scribes assembled. Peter followed him at a distance right into the high priest's courtyard. He was sitting with the servants, warming himself by the fire. The chief priests and the whole Sanhedrin were looking for testimony against Jesus to put him to death, but they could not find any. For many were giving false testimony against him, and the testimonies did not agree. Some stood up and gave false testimony against him, stating, We heard him say, I will destroy this temple made with human hands, and in three days I will build another not made with by human hands. Yet their testimony did not agree even on this. Then the high priest stood up before them all and questioned Jesus. Don't you have an answer to what these men are testifying against you? But he kept silent and did not answer. Again, the high priest questioned him. Are you the Messiah, the son of the blessed one? I am, said Jesus. And you will see the son of man seated at the right hand of power and coming with the clouds of heaven. Then the high priest tore his robes and said, why do we still need witnesses? You have heard the blasphemy. What is your decision? They all condemned him as deserving death. Then some began to spit on him, to blindfold him and to beat him, saying, prophesy. The temple servants also took him and slapped him. While Peter was in the courtyard below, one of the high priest's maid servants came. When she saw Peter warming himself, she looked at him and said, you also were with Jesus, the man from Nazareth. But he denied it. I don't know what, or understand what you're talking about. Then he went to the entryway and a rooster crowed. When the maidservant saw him again, she began to tell those standing nearby, this man is one of them. But again, he denied it. After a little while, those standing there said to Peter again, you certainly are one of them since you're also a Galilean. Then he started to curse and swear. I don't know this man you're talking about. Immediately, a rooster crowed a second time, and Peter remembered when Jesus had spoken the word to him, before the rooster crows twice, you will deny me three times. And he broke down and wept. It's Thursday night of Passion Week, and Jesus has already eaten the Passover meal with his disciples. Now the time has come for his betrayal, arrest, and trials to come to pass. I want you to notice this morning how the events took place, how Jesus responds, and what this means for you. I want you to see first the rejection of Jesus. 
the rejection of Jesus. Jesus has already announced his disciples at the Passover meal earlier in the evening that someone would betray him, and indeed it was Judas Iscariot. But now he tells them, verse 27, all of you will fall away. Peter corrects Jesus, even lectures him. Even if everybody else does, I'm not. I'm staying. I'm going to be here, Jesus. I'm not going anywhere I'm away from you. I'm here with you even to the end. Jesus tells him, you're going to deny me three times before the rooster crows twice. Well, sure enough, Jesus was, and I put this in your notes. Number one, denied three times by Peter. He was denied three times by Peter. After his prayer time in the garden, we then see that secondly, he was betrayed by Judas Iscariot. Judas comes with a mob behind him. They're carrying swords and clubs ready for battle. Like a professional SWAT team, they're ready for any kind of uprising that may take place. Judas approaches Jesus, kisses him as the inside signal to the soldiers, hey, this is the guy that you're supposed to arrest. Judas betrayed Jesus to the religious leaders. Do you remember by for how much? 30 pieces of silver. Now, according to the book of Exodus, that is the amount that you are to pay an owner of a slave if he is killed by an ox. This is a slave wage. Jesus is being treated like a slave. But what's also interesting is the prophet Zechariah said that the Messiah would be betrayed for 30 pieces of silver, and here is Jesus. The fulfillment of the prophecy is taking place. He indeed is the promised Messiah, and he is being betrayed for the exact amount as was foretold by the prophecy. Then we see, thirdly, that he was arrested by soldiers. Now, do you see the injustice here? Do you see what's happening? The only sinless, perfect human being who has ever lived is being treated like a criminal. But then we see fourthly that Jesus was abandoned by disciples. Verse 50, they all deserted him and ran away. These are his best friends. These are the men he's invested his life into for the past three years. These are the men whom he hand-selected to be the foundation stones upon which his church would be built. One of them in particular, which according to church tradition is John Mark, the author of this gospel, was almost captured by the soldiers, and they grabbed him by the only clothes that he was wearing, which was a linen cloth, and so he runs away naked. It's amazing here. Do you see the picture of what's happening? This is just like Eden. Once again, man turns his back on God in a garden and he runs away from him naked. You see, sin leads us to run away naked in shame from the God who loves us and clothes us in his righteousness. This is a picture of what happened back in Genesis chapter 3. That when sin entered into the world, man ran away from God and hid in nakedness, when we see that the Lord is the one who loves and he will clothe us in his own righteousness. It's in this moment that Jesus is now abandoned in the garden. He is left alone. He has no one to stand there with him. He is suffering by himself. He's then taken to the high priest where he will face the first of several trials that he will endure over the next several hours. It's the first trial that Jesus would, number five, he would be lied about. 
he would be lied about. False testimony and false accusations are being lobbed at Jesus. Excuse me, I'm going to take breaks periodically. Accusation after accusation is brought against him, but none of them could be corroborated. None of them could be validated or proven true. Each of the lies keep crumbling under the weight of truth. You see, lies crumble under the weight of the source of all truth, Jesus. Jesus did not argue. He did not fight back. He stayed silent. The prophet Isaiah 53, verse 7 He says, he was oppressed and afflicted, and yet he did not open his mouth. He was led like a lamb to the slaughter, and as a sheep before its shearers is silent, so he did not open his mouth. Sixthly, we see he was accused by the high priest. What's he accused of? Blasphemy. Jesus was claiming to be God, which he is, by the way. But Jesus told them, verse 62, I am the Messiah, and you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming with the clouds of heaven. You see, Jesus is identifying himself as the promised Messiah. He is the fulfillment of Daniel chapter 7 and Psalm 110. Today, he's saying, I stand before you, but there's coming a day in which you're going to stand before me. Make no mistake, a great reversal is coming. Well, Jesus' words set off an uproar in the assembly, and they all said, well, he deserves death, verse 64, which leads to number seven, Jesus being beaten and mocked by religious leaders. He was spit upon, he was blindfolded, and he was beaten. Question, if you knew all of this was coming, would you still go through with it? If you knew the type of torture that, you were, that Jesus is about to endure, would you still go through with it? As I examined my heart this week, as I've been studying this text, I'm like, man, would I do this? I don't have a good answer for you. But motivated by love for you, motivated for love of the Father, motivated to obey the will of God, here is Jesus knowing full well of what's about to happen, and he's right in the midst of it, and he obeys anyways. He is the one who is perfectly, perfectly seeking to obey the will of the Father, and he still goes through this kind of suffering. But you see, Jesus was denied so that you would be received. Jesus was abandoned so that you would always be kept. Jesus was arrested so that you could go free. Jesus was betrayed so that you could stand with him Jesus was lied about so that you could walk in the truth. Jesus was accused so that you could be blameless. Jesus was beaten so that you would always be loved. You see, Jesus was rejected so that in him you will always be accepted. This is the work of Jesus in which he has a greater purpose behind what's happening here. He's allowing the worst egregious evil that the world has ever seen and he's embracing it and he is taking it upon himself so that he might receive all that we deserve and then he in turn gives us back all that he deserves. God is so kind to you. If you're wondering, does God even care about what I'm facing right now? Does God know? Does God love me? Look at the text and you see very well that God goes on record to say, I want you to know how much I love you. 
I care for you so deeply. I want you to see all that my son had to endure so that you might be restored back into a right relationship with me. I want you to see all the suffering, all the injustice that he had to go through so that you could be set free. All the kindness of God that he is showing you, that he was rejected so that you would always be accepted. I want you to see, secondly, here in the text, I want you to see the foreknowledge of Jesus. The foreknowledge of Jesus. Jesus knew that he would be abandoned. None of this caught Jesus off guard. Did you notice verse 27? He says, all of you, all of you will fall away because it is written. Ah, okay. Now we're getting to the heart of the matter, okay? All of scripture is true. It cannot be broken. And so all of this is being done to Jesus, verse 49, so that the scriptures must be fulfilled. Jesus here, he is applying Zechariah 13.7 to his disciples. And so as the sheep are about to be scattered, he's saying, guys, here's the deal. The word's taking place. Everything that was talked about in the Old Testament, all the prophecies of how all this would take place, it's shaken down. Here it goes. You see, God, who before the foundations of the world had ever been put in place, he knew how this day would take place. And he is taking care to orchestrate every detail of it. Every single detail of what's happening here. Jesus is fully aware of what is coming. He knew, verse 30, that Peter would deny him three times. And yet he followed through with it anyways. He knew that Peter would turn his back upon him. He knew all that he would endure that day because he knew that it would bring about your salvation. And so as we examine Jesus and see who he is and what he has done, let it compel you to exalt in worship, to treasure him more deeply, to follow him more faithfully. Just say, Jesus, I, I can't believe you did all of this for me, but I trust you and I treasure you because you were willing to endure all of this. That God here had it all planned down to the smallest detail and Jesus knew what was going to happen and he did it anyway because he loves you. Thirdly, what I want you to see in the text is the faithfulness of Jesus. He knew what was coming, and he already told his disciples that he was going to go through this. And I remember throughout the Gospel of Mark, we've already seen this several times, in which he has said, this is what's coming. Remember in chapter 8, verse 31, when he was at Caesarea Philippi, and he told them, hey, the Son of Man is going to be betrayed into the hands of the chief priests, the elders, and the scribes. He's going to be beaten, spit upon, and mocked, and then he's going to die and rise again on the third day. And then Jesus prophesied it again in chapter 9, verse 31, when he's in Galilee, and he says, the Son of Man is going to be betrayed, he's going to suffer, and he's going to die, but he's going to rise again on the third day. And then he does it again in chapter 10 when he's outside Jericho and he's headed towards Jerusalem. And he's, as he's walking up that long, that long mountain climb up towards Jerusalem, he stops and says, guys, remember, for the Son of Man is going to suffer and die. But he's going to rise again on the third day. Jesus knew what was coming. He was fully aware. He was prepared for what was ahead of him. Well, he tells them one more time. Look at verse 28. After I have risen... I will go ahead of you to Galilee. 
with me. Goodness gracious. Jesus is already planning his reunion with his disciples. Jesus is fully aware of what the next 24, 48, 72 hours are going to look like. He's been calling his shot for a long time about what is about to happen. And now that things are underway, I love this, verse 28. Just one more time, I want to remind you, just so you don't forget, I'm going to rise again. And after I have risen, verse 28, I'm going to go ahead of you into Galilee. Jesus is planning the reunion tour. He's planning the time they can get back together. And when he makes a promise, he keeps it. You see, everything happened exactly as Jesus said it would, and he ends up in Galilee where he will reunite with his disciples. Beloved, when Jesus makes a promise to you in his word, it's a guarantee that it's going to happen. You can rest assured that when God promises that to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord, God keeps his promise. When God promises, I will never leave you nor forsake you, God keeps his promise. When God promises, I will be with you even to the end of the age, God keeps his promise. When God promises, I will go before you to fight your battles, God keeps his promise. When God promises, I will give you eternal life and no one can snatch you from my hand, God keeps his promise. When God promises, I will forgive you and give you a new heart, God keeps his promise. When God promises to send the promised Holy Spirit, the comforter, God keeps his promise. When God promises, I will provide for your needs according to my riches in Christ Jesus, God keeps his promise. When God promises, I am coming again and I'm gonna take you to myself so that where I am, you may be also, God keeps his promise. You can trust the promises of God. Here is Jesus, moments before his betrayal, verse 28, and tells his disciples, I'm gonna see you in Galilee, boys. You can know in a couple of days, I'll see you up there. God is faithful. You can trust him. You may be going through a trial right now that is painful and difficult, and you're asking big questions right now. Would you so bank your heart, your soul, and your future upon Jesus and his promises? Because he who promised is faithful. You can trust the one who knows all things, made you, and keeps you, and sent his son for you, and you lean completely upon him. But you know what's so significant here as you look throughout chapter 14 and even a common thread that's woven throughout all the gospels is the amount of attention that's given to two of the disciples in particular, Judas Iscariot and Simon Peter. Both of them turned their back on Jesus. Both of them went against Jesus. So why did one get restored and the other did not? What I want us to do this morning is to finish up our time looking at this relationship between Judas and Peter. But in order for us to understand this rightly, we have to understand 2 Corinthians 7.10. 2 Corinthians 7.10, it says, For godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret. But worldly grief produces death. 
So what we're about to see here from the text is that there's two different ways to respond when you sin against Jesus. Now, when I first came to Christ as an 18-year-old, I thought, man, by the time I'm 30, I'm going to have the entire New Testament memorized, and I'm not going to sin anymore. Y'all, I'm 0 for 2 right now. There's this idea that we might have that when you put your faith in Jesus, you stop sinning. Okay. It's not true, by the way. Didn't know if you knew that or not. Um, In fact, here's what I have found is though I'm growing in my sanctification, though I'm becoming more and more like Jesus, what I have found is the closer I get to Jesus, the more I realize how sinful I am. And that there are deeper sins that are more about the motivations of my heart that the Spirit is continually pointing out, saying, so though we may not be committing the big, egregious, ugly sins, it's the motivations of the heart that God is examining. And so as I'm growing in the gospel, I'm realizing that, man, sin is still ever-present. This is why Paul talks about in Romans 7, just this struggle. Um, He says, I don't do the things that I should, and I do the things that I shouldn't. Oh, what a wretched man that I am. There's this war, this inner turmoil that we as believers experience and deal with on a day-to-day basis in which we're having to put to death our flesh. We have to tell our old nature to die and we have to put it to death with the sword of the Spirit. It is hard work. It's exhausting. But we have the Spirit who gives us the power, Romans 8, to do this. But as we follow Christ, this growth in godliness, we still sin. We still have times where we say, think, or do things that don't look like Christ. And that's true for all of us. None of us are exempt yet. We will be perfect at the resurrection. But until that day, we're still going to be fighting the flesh. But as we fight the flesh, there's two different ways to respond. What we see from 2 Corinthians 7.10 is one that leads to life, and there's one that leads to death. Well, what are those? Well, the first one, the first way to respond when, not if, when you sin against Jesus is regret. It's regret. That's what Judas Iscariot did. It's it's a worldly grief that leads to death. In Matthew 27, verse 3, Matthew tells us, then Judas, his betrayer, seeing that Jesus had been condemned, was full of remorse And he returned the 30 pieces of silver to the chief priests and the elders. Now, on the outside, we're thinking, man, that's good. Okay, he he feels bad. Um, He's he's giving the money back, saying, I don't want it. But the text says he's full of remorse. He felt bad for what he had done. He was full of regret. This type of regret here is focusing on self. It's, man, I really wish I had not done that. It's me-focused. It's kind of like when a politician gets caught in a scandal. They say something like, I regret that it happened. Or I regret that uh, people got hurt. My apology for how this happened. That's not repentance. That's, that, that's, that's being sorry that you got caught. That's not what Jesus is talking about here. That's not repentance. It's regret. It's saying, ah, man. I hate how that happened. You see, Judas was more upset that he messed up than the fact that he sinned against God. 
For Judas, it was about him. You see, regret is me-focused. Repentance is Christ-focused. It's realizing I have sinned against the Lord. This is a Psalms uh, 51 when David is repenting over his sin with Bathsheba. And when she says, Lord, against you and you alone I have sinned. Well, Judas, he didn't think he could be forgiven. This is a man who's so caught up in his regret, but he did not humble himself. He didn't repent and he threw a pity party and then he took his own life. So you've got a regret. That's not repentance. When, when a child punches their sibling, I've got experience with this in my house, and says, sorry. Uh, that's not repentance, okay? Um, love the effort. Let's try that again. When a child pushes their sibling down the stairs, it's like, whoops. Okay, no, 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 we got to work on this one. Okay, so at our house, this is how we're coaching it up. Um, if you get hit in the face, it's not, I'm sorry, oh, it's okay. No, it's not okay. Here's how re- biblical reconciliation looks like. The offender says, I'm sorry, I was wrong, please forgive me. All three are in play. It's a confession, it's an ownership of what has happened. It's 100% on me, I'm taking responsibility. I'm not doing this anymore and I want to reconcile the relationship. And so whenever there's conflict between children in your home and say, I'm sorry, I'm sorry. And they say, say, that's okay, that's okay. No, no, it's not okay. It's not okay to push your, your sibling down the stairs. You have to seek forgiveness, reconciliation. This is what we're leading to, is wanting to go towards repentance. So Judas had regret, but he did not have repentance. But then we got the second part here. We see it from 2 Corinthians 7.10, and it's the word repent. This is what Simon Peter did. It's a godly grief that leads to life. You see, Peter felt tremendous responsibility for how he had turned his back on his friend and how ultimately he had sinned against God. And after hearing the rooster crow for the second time, he wept bitterly over what he had done to Jesus. Peter humbled himself, and it led him to repentance. Later on, he would pin these words in his first letter, in 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 5, in which he says, God resists the proud, but gives grace to the humble. He knows this personally. This idea of denying Jesus three times, you can see it throughout his writings in which he is continually humbled by the fact that Jesus would still extend him grace. You see, true repentance, it does three things. It owns the sin personally, confesses the sin completely, and pursues reconciliation humbly. True repentance owns the sin personally. This is on me. It's not blame shifting. Yeah, I did this, but uh -uh, that's not repentance. It's taking full ownership. It's confessing the sin completely. It's not, I'm going to give you part of the story. No, I'm bringing it all up into the light, out into the light here. And then you're going to pursue reconciliation humbly. 
And this is part of the process of being a follower of Jesus. You're, you're, you're taking what happened in the dark and you're bringing it into the light. This is what I kept challenging the students with this week, is that these things that you have hidden in your heart, that that nobody knows that you think except for you, well, the Lord knows. Bring it into the light. Take that sin that so easily ensnares and entangles and bring it out and let Jesus heal you with his gospel. Take what was happening in the dark and bring it into the light and expose it. Satan does not want you to take your sin and confess it. He wants you to hide it and keep it in the dark where you can be miserable and loathing and feel tremendous guilt for it. No, bring it into the light. Let me tell you where I sinned, Lord. This is it. I want to confess all of it. Here's all of my baggage, all of my issues, all of my brokenness, all of my sin. And God, I bring it before you because Jesus, I believe that your blood is greater than my sin. That where sin increases, grace increases all the more. I'm trusting in you, Jesus, to wash me, to make me clean. And Lord, you promised me a fresh start. So Lord, here I am. I'm going to come out and I'm going to make myself vulnerable. I want to humble myself before you and get low before you. Do you remember what Peter did after this moment? Jesus goes to the cross. He and the other disciples, they lock the door in hiding And then the women come and tell him, hey, the tomb is empty. What does Peter do? He gets up and he sprints to the empty tomb. And then, after all this takes place, he and his disciples say, you know what? Hey, let's go fishing. So they go up to Galilee. Remember when Jesus said, verse 28, I'm going to go ahead of you to Galilee? They're up there fishing all night. They catch nothing. Then as morning breaks, there's a man on the beach and he says, hey, cast your net on the right side of the boat. I'm sure there was a little bit of grumbling like, okay, buddy. They throw it over the side and they catch so much fish they can't bring it in. And do you know what Peter does? He's so shocked by the moment. He goes, it's the Lord. He jumps in the water and swims a hundred yards. The rest of the disciples eventually catch up. What does Jesus do with Peter? He cooks him breakfast. You see, when you sin against Jesus and you confess it, you bring it into the light, he cooks you breakfast. He invites you in. Let's have a meal together. Three times Jesus says to Peter, do you love me? Do you love me? Do you love me? Peter says, yes, Lord. You know I do. Yes, Lord. Yes, Lord. You know I do. Feed my sheep, feed my sheep, feed my sheep. Three times Peter denied Jesus. Three times Peter rest- uh, Jesus restores Peter. Just because you sin against Jesus does not disqualify you from God still using your life. Do not let the enemy throw your past in your face and say that you can't be used by God. Because what we see 40 days later, Peter steps up in Jerusalem, preaches the gospel, and 3,000 people come to faith in Christ. Do not think for a moment that you are disqualified from being used by Jesus when you sin 
one of the lies that the enemy will lob at you is that you have no value and God cannot use you. Reject that lie for what it is. Because of what Jesus has done for you in the gospel, please understand that he was rejected so that you could be accepted. So Kenneth, what's the call? It's your impact point and it's this. When you sin, repent and run to Jesus for grace. Repent and run to Jesus for grace. He will receive you. He will accept you. You and I are still in a fight against our own sin. The attitudes of our hearts, the words that come out of our mouth, the actions that we take, decisions that we make, we still need the grace of Jesus and it is enough. Maybe today you're sitting here thinking, my goodness, there is sin in my life. I need to repent and run to Jesus. Why don't you do it now? In your heart, confess it. Take what was in the dark, bring it into the light. Let Jesus heal you with his gospel. And this is why he came. Jesus was rejected so that you in him would be accepted forever. Run to the Lord Jesus Christ. 